0: Welcome to episode 25 of Make Me Watch It, the podcast where listeners tell me which of the over 800 movies I own but have never seen I'm going to be watching next. This episode is about a movie about a scientist who's, well, he's an astronaut. Because of circumstances beyond his control and equipment malfunction, he ends up marooned on the planet Mars, and he's got to figure out how to survive based on what he finds. No, it's not The Martian with Matt Damon, it is Robinson Crusoe on Mars from 1964. I apologize in advance if I mispronounce Crusoe, thanks to my first exposure being the closing credits of Gilligan's Island, I grew up with the habit of pronouncing it as Caruso instead of Crusoe, but the C and the R are side by side. So, if I'm making mistakes, blame Gilligan. So this movie was originally released in June of 1964. The IMDb doesn't have a specific date for its release. It was created through Paramount Pictures. It was directed by Byron Haskin. Now, Haskin would also direct a few episodes of The Outer Limits in this year. And would continue directing things on TV until 1968. He passed away in 1984. He is probably best known as the director of War of the Worlds, but he also worked in special effects in movies like Arsenic on Old Lace and The Seahawk with Errol Flynn. So he's got a fairly sizable list of credits to his name dating back to 1927. At least his director credits go back to 1927. His cinematography credits go back to 1922, so he has worked in multiple ends of the industry. There are three writing credits. Ib Melchior and John C. Higgins get screenplay credit, while Daniel Defoe gets credit for creating the novel Robinson Crusoe. Melchior's credits go back in writing to 1955. He does seem to like Mars. Wrote the screenplay for The Angry Red Planet. He wrote a couple episodes of Men into Space. He wrote Journey to the Seventh Planet. He wrote an episode of The Outer Limits called Premonition. And he wrote a story called The Racer that was adapted into Death Race 2000. Now, John C. Higgins has a credit list that goes further back, goes back to 1935, including a lot of screenplays for shorts in the 1930s and 40s. Then he was on Railroaded, T-Men, He Walked By Night, Border Incident. So he's got a lot of solid credits to his name. Now I'm not familiar with a lot of these titles, but based on the titles alone, this would be the first one I would expect to be anything in terms of sci-fi or fantasy. In fact, the only other one that seems like sci-fi or fantasy would be his final credit from 1972, Daughters of Satan. There is a fairly small cast. And by fairly small, I mean there's only really four main performers, and only three of those are human. The astronaut who gets stranded is Commander Christopher Kit Draper, played by Paul Mante. Mante is best known for this, for playing Dr. McAvoy in the Manitou. Roy Moore in Day of the Animals, and one of his more popular movies, if not one of his most notable roles, is playing the reporter in Apollo 13, which I would have to think would be almost stunt casting, where they found out he was still alive and available, so they wanted him in this movie, and put him in Apollo 13 because of this film here. He's got a lot of guest star credits on TV, 124 total credits to his name, including episodes of Hunter, Cagney and Lacey, Remington Steele, The Fall Guy, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, The A-Team, Dallas, Quincy M.E., so a lot of fairly regular work, dating back to 1958. One notable guest spot he had is on the 1966 Batman series, and that's notable because one of the other three credited human actors is none other than Adam West. So Adam West is far and away best known for playing Batman and Bruce Wayne in the 1966 series and the movie that spun out of it. He played himself, after a sense, in Drop Dead Gorgeous. He played Mayor Adam West in The Family Guy. So there's a tremendous number of credits to his name. Now his role here is as Colonel Dan McReady, So he's the one who's actually in charge of the mission. When things go south, he does not survive the landing. So he's in the first 10 minutes, and then a short dream sequence partway through the film. The other performer who probably has the second greatest screen time of any others is the woolly monkey. This is his only credit, playing Mona after they put him in fur underwear so you couldn't tell he was a male monkey. But yet he is a monkey, who was a companion on the craft, and who ends up, you know, helping our stranded Kit Draper, A.K.A. our Robinson Crusoe character, find food and water and one. And the final prominent performer is Victor London. He plays the alien eventually named Friday. He also appears in the 1966 Batman series as Chief Standing Pat, and whatnot. He was a Psycorps official in an episode of Babylon 5. Again, quite possibly in a direct reference to this. So he's got 31 acting credits to his name. Oddly, after his four appearances on Batman, two as the Octopus and two as Chief Standing Pat, he then has an uncredited role in 1976 Then he appears in Babylon 5, and then a few other appearances between 2002 and 2007. The bulk of his work runs from 1958 to 1968, including playing a lieutenant in an episode of Star Trek titled to Mercy. So while the idea is very closely inspired by the Robinson Crusoe story, it's a little on the nose to put it in the title. And director Byron Haskin didn't like that himself. That was something he was forced to do by the studios and by the production company. So he went with it. I'm not exactly sure how he would put it. It's just, you know, IMDb Trivia said he didn't like it. I don't know exactly how he'd phrase it. To me, the title sounds less like a title and more like the elevator pitch to go along with them. So, yeah, sure, it's Robinson Crusoe on Mars. And then what? There's a lot more to go with it. Now, as we said, this is the same director who did the 1953 War of the Worlds, and this even reuses some of those same special effects. So it's the same alien ships, everything. Because, in this case, Friday is a slave who's managed to escape enslavement and survives with Kit Draper until they manage to get saved and picked up by astronauts from Earth. But if the aliens can track his bracelets, it makes me wonder, have they just told these incredibly advanced slavers that there's a lot of life on Earth, and they're just going to bring them there? Is this really going to be a happy ending, or do they just make things much, much worse for planet Earth by bringing him back with them? That's something that they leave. It's definitely implied it's a happy ending. Victorious, Earth sent another crew, they've been found, they're going to bring them back. I don't know how... Earth knew that they survived, because he was stranded on Mars with no supplies for several months. But they did. We get that happy ending that Hollywood was looking for in the 1960s. And that's actually what I find most interesting about this. In the 1950s, science fiction movies were usually alien invasion movies or monster movies, and they were just meant to be mindless popcorn fun. And this is the first step back in that direction of the really heady, thoughtful science fiction that is often attributed to 2001 A Space Odyssey and becomes all the rage for science fiction films from 2001 really up until Star Wars. So it is interesting in a way. It's enjoyable. The production is good to some degree. The cinematography is phenomenal, which isn't surprising when you've got a strong cinematographer in Winton C. Hotch, but when you also have a director who used to be a cinematographer full time. These guys will have a great sense of how to use the landscape when they were filming on location in Death Valley. The issues I have with it are that the science doesn't work for Mars. Now, in terms of the challenges that they face, how they solve them, I would have no problems accepting this if these were astronauts who had landed on a planet outside our solar system. But this is not Mars. Granted, they didn't know Mars as well as we do now when this movie was made, but they knew it better than this. The astronaut refers to the canals on Mars. That was a mistranslation. That was caught in the scientific community immediately. An Italian astronomer noted that there were canali on Mars, which were poorly translated into canals, as opposed to the correct translation of channels. Now, canals are artificial, channels are naturally occurring. So, all of a sudden, the population was thinking, oh, there's life on Mars. They have found canals, they found something that's an artificial construction. No, they just found channels, which could be little more than dried up canyons. Similarly, while the general public wasn't sure of this, the scientific community had done the calculations saying, okay, Mars has roughly this gravity, it is this far from the sun. We put those two pieces of information together with some knowledge of the chemistry of the molecular weight of gas molecules, and you can predict with great accuracy what is the atmosphere going to be composed of as long as you've accurately got the mass of the planet. We had an accurate picture of Mars's mass, which can be derived by observing the orbits of its moons, Phobos and Deimos. So the theoretical prediction of the atmosphere is that there's not going to be a breathable atmosphere there. And every probe we have since landed on the surface has confirmed that, yeah, the atmosphere is exactly what we expected it to be. So, while the atmosphere is thinner than on Earth, it's not breathable as it is here, where he's just using the built in oxygen tanks as a booster and seems to take several days to find another source of oxygen. This astronaut would have died, especially since he has a habit of taking his gloves off and opening his faceplate. That just doesn't wash at all because of what we know of Mars and what was known to the scientific community, if not to the public at large, at the time this movie was made. Now, we do like to talk about the box office performance. It's generally said that it didn't do well at the box office, but I don't know what the expectations were. The estimated budget is $1.2 million, but box office numbers from 1964 are not readily available. I see no indication that it was nominated for any major awards, let alone that it won them. In terms of messages and morals, the intended positive message that you could take out of it is about perseverance of spirit, don't give up, keep trying. You know, we do have a happy ending because they did not give up. A message that they probably didn't want to convey intentionally is a little bit of the white man's burden thing. When Friday speaks for the first time, and Kit Draper realizes he can talk, the immediate reaction is, okay, I'm going to teach you English no matter what. There's no hint of, okay, we're going to meet in the middle. I will teach you English if you teach me your language. It's more about elevating the savage who was clearly inspired by the Native Americans. So that rubs a little bit the wrong way these days, but given the culture that the film was made in, I don't think that was a conscious message they were trying to send. I think that was a subconscious message they ended up sending because they'd been programmed with it and hadn't questioned it because that was just the society the filmmakers were raised in. It doesn't make it right, but it also doesn't make it malicious. In terms of reception these days, IMDB users have give it an average rating of 6.6 out of 10. That's after about 5,000 ratings. Letterboxd users are giving it a 3.1 out of 5. So slightly lower. Over at Rotten Tomatoes, audience scores give it a 3.4 out of 5. It's liked by 61%. Because again, Rotten Tomatoes says any score above .x, you like it. And anything below point X, you don't like it. So the average critic score out of their 16 critic reviews is 6.5 out of 10, but that counts as 94% because there's 15 positive and one rotten. So 15 fresh, one rotten, you know, 15 above their arbitrary line, one below, which turns that 6.5 out of 10 into a 94%. Now, lately, I've also started looking at taste.io. Which is all about rating things according to your perspective. And then it compares your tastes to others and tries to predict what kind of movies you'd like. It only has 14 ratings. It's sitting at about two and a half out of five. So that's average. It's odd because you can't actually rate something on a star scale with this. It's either awful, meh, good. Or amazing. And somehow they turn that into the star rating. One of the things I find interesting is that you can also rate it with attributes on that site. So it is on the slow, simple, and light side in terms of theme and plot. And the recommendation is to watch it by yourself as opposed to watching it with friends or family. So yeah, taste.io seems interesting. I'm gonna keep playing with it, and as long as I'm engaged with it, I will send that same sort of information or include that same information in upcoming podcasts. In terms of other critical reception, it was selected by the Criterion Collection. That's one of the reasons it was chosen for this month's podcast. The movies that were voted on by listeners have been tied at either one or zero votes each for a while. We're not getting a lot of repeat voting. So I'm taking a look at everything that's tied with one vote each and going through them in the order of my greatest financial investment to my lowest financial investment. So expect a lot of Criterion Collection movies this year. But the Criterion Collection did select this as one of their titles with spine number 404. Anyway, that's about all we have to say about Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Join us again next month for our next feature which hasn't been determined yet. Thank you for listening.